Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. This is episode number 40 and this week it's time for something slightly different. Um, there's a bit of a backstory to this week's episode um, that continues on to next week's as well. So, last year I got an email from a third year product design student called Kevin Sink asking if I wanted to go for a coffee. So we did and we had a bit of a chat and we sort of left it where we were going to try and do a project together and we had no idea what that was or what the idea would be or anything like that but if something came up then we'd sort of give each other a shout. So summer of this year uh, Kevin got in touch and said oh I've been up um, doing some letterpress printing at um, a studio in Cooper Angus um, with a guy called John Eason. You should sort of come up and meet him and have a look around his like amazing studio and see if we can do some prints together or do something there. And I was like, yep, yeah, sounds great. I mean, letterpress is something that I've never really touched upon before. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with letterpress, there is a bit of an explanation in this episode, um, but you're probably best going to the show notes and checking out. I'll put a little video in there that sort of shows exactly what it is. So I went up and we had a sort of three-hour chat with John and he showed us around this crazy studio. It's filled with like prints and paper and machinery and uh, hundreds of drawers of typography. So all the individual letters, ligatures, capitals, fonts, everything. It's just madness. I mean, there's literally millions of objects in that studio. And we decided that the logical progression was to do an episode with each of the guys and then we collaborate and create um, a series of prints together. Um, so that's what we've done. I've done two episodes and, and created two prints together. So the first of which is going to be released this week. So you can buy that on the website. So cccdundee.com forward slash store. Where you can either buy it on Etsy through there or you can drop me an email if you want to come and collect it. So to drop me an email it's creativechitchatdundee at gmail.com and it's a run of 20 prints and they're 20 pounds each uh, this week's print it's it's themed on quotes but both of them are um, this one's uh, both of them are actually pulled out of John and I's conversation in this podcast um, but the first one is common sense is highly dangerous so we've done created a, a letterpress print off the back of that and you can see it on Twitter and on Instagram um, and on the CCC Dundee website as well. You can check it out there. It's been a really exciting process for me, playing with letterpress, learning about it, sort of comparing that to the standard digital process, which seems a lot quicker, but you just don't get that same physicality, that same feel. Um, and I learned a lot. Um, and John is I mean, he's just absolutely fascinating. And I think we talked for maybe two, two and a half hours. So I've tried to edit this episode down as much as I can without cutting out any of the, the really interesting anecdotes and, and bits of information that he puts in there. So what I've actually done is chopped out a bit at the start, um, which was more about his upbringing um, and his introduction into to printmaking. Um, but to give you a little bit of background on that, he grew up in Broughty Ferry. He then I mean, did art at school as well as science, but at that point, I think art was seen as a bit of a hippie subject, so it was more guys with no socks and sandals and that lived in garages and, and sort of struggled to make ends meet for their art. Whereas scientists could make a, a decent living, so I think his parents pushed him towards the, the science route and he decided that was right for him. And then his career sort of progressed from there 
and you'll hear about how the, the sort of two ended up coming together. Um, but what's fascinating about John is that um, his art and his, his printmaking has, has never been driven by money. He, there's no real interest in, in monetizing it as per se. Um, but yeah, he's got some some fantastic points of view, especially on the the sort of future of letterpress and, and where he sees that going, um, especially in terms of sort of three D print and things like that as well. So hopefully that gives you enough of a background. I will try and put a bunch of stuff in the show notes um, just to give you a bit of context on um, the various things that are mentioned. And it'll be John's episode this week, and then we'll have Kevin Sinks next week with the launch of the second print. So. Let's get into episode 40, and this is with John Eason. I had a friend who, or a friend of the family, who worked at DC Thompson, the big publishers, and he worked, uh, as it happened in their binding department, was responsible for the annual Beatles and Dandies and all this bit. Um, and uh, he got the printer's annual yearbook called the Penrose Annual, which was a, a vast tool which ranged right through the whole of the printing industry for each year and had articles on design and graphics and typography, but also on the technicalities of printing, uh, the latest machinery and all the rest of it. And he would give me, I'm not sure, yes, he did give me a couple of copies of that, originally just to sort of let me read through them. And reading through those, you've got articles on the latest typography and the latest designs and examples of graphic designers at work in advertising industry working and uh, what was going on in printing. And I found that fascinating. And what I also found interesting was how much it was different from what was going on with your little local printers and what was happening with most people when they went to get something produced. It was very different. It was this whole world of people who were the, the big businesses who were using the latest art and the latest styles and fashion type things. Whereas here, that was virtually, you know, it was another world that was 30, 40, 50 years different. Um, and at the same time, was also there was another aspect to all of this, which perhaps got me into lettering as well, which was the fact that I thought, it's such a shame. I can still remember thinking, when you've got a bus ticket, and those are the days when you've got cardboard ones that actually were printed in advance and then the conductor would punch holes in, rather than run off a little machine. Um, how, how scrappily they were designed. They were just not very aesthetically pleasing designs. Occasionally you'd come across one where somebody, you know, they'd done it a bit better and it was a bit more interesting, but most of them were really just thrown together in the old way. And, and you think, that, and I thought, surely there's better, you could improve on all of these things and make them all a bit better and sort of, you know, just generally make life a little bit more aesthetically pleasing right about. Um, which might seem rather an odd thing to get into, but I mean, looking at that, I mean, it's a whole area. Um, and it has all happened since then. The average piece of printing of that sort has, on the whole, improved. But it's not necessarily because the general public have got more critical of them. I think it's just that the graphic designers and the typographers have got their hands on the means of production. Because there's the area, the whole area then was when you went to get something printed, you took a strappy bit of paper you'd written what you wanted on or typed on, because they were the means of producing things, took them into the printer, and some guy there would hand it to the man who actually set the type who would choose the lettering and the spacing and the positioning and all the rest of it and produce a design which you then got. And you might get a proof and be able to say, oh no, I don't like that, I want it a bit bigger, a bit smaller, whatever else. But you didn't usually get a chance to be too much of an interference in the process. Or as I did when you did do that, they then rejected it and complained. They didn't, they wanted to be associated with that kind of design. 
So, uh, so it's kind of like you had to take your idea to a designer to get it printed. So there had to be that middleman, that step. You didn't, well, in, in most local and small areas, you didn't have a designer. It was the man at the printer who did it. Yeah, but essentially he, oh, yeah. he was a designer. He was a designer, yes, yeah. the craftsman was a designer. It, it was this difference. In fact, one of the things that gradually over the 20th century, it, it's these things don't happen in one, in a one, so you don't suddenly find that designers, somebody has the idea of designers, and everything's done by designers. What happens is you can go right back to the 20s and the earlier, where there's designers in the big centres and the big companies producing things, but to the small communities, small towns and the rest of it, these people were pretty rare, and they would only do the more prestigious things. So at what point... Did you start getting paid? Well, it never worried me about getting paid. That's one of the interesting things. Um, getting paid for what I produced was something I avoided, I suppose. I mean, I was thinking about that earlier. Um, I, I'm, I don't, I've never wanted to be tied to being paid. The book I found, which, pleasure, uh, Printing for Pleasure, which started me off on actually doing physical printing, actually says in it at the beginning, you know, Becoming a slave to printing, I can't remember what the wording was he used, um, becoming a drudge is one of the phrases he has, it's when you, when you start doing it for money. You've got to be careful that if you do that, then it can take all the pleasure out of the thing. And so I was always conscious that there was a risk to becoming caught up in that. And because I'd got a career, I was heading in the direction of doing science, which would earn a living, I'd, and I wasn't seeing art as my living, I wasn't focusing on... I've got to try and see how I can make money out of it. Of course, it's quite nice to get some cash back for doing things. Uh, and that got me more materials or more resources to do what I wanted to do. I used to do things like um, paint the signs that went to farm gates. Um, and that was, again, lettering things. Uh, and got paid for those. I sold a couple of pictures when I was a student. But I was more... And, and when I started actually printing, I printed for student organisations. I did small stuff, ephemera tickets and membership cards and so on. And I got paid for doing those because I was trying to get back the money I borrowed from the bank to buy the equipment. But once I paid for my equipment, I was, wasn't looking for jobs where I got paid. I was doing jobs which were for charities and more because I was interested in doing what I was doing. Mm. That has been, that has been, and, and because I managed to do that change at that point, when I got a job when I left university, um, that allowed me to do my printing and pay for it out of my ordinary income, the, the acquisition of bits and pieces. Um, and one of the great joys of letterpress printing is the fact that once you've actually got the basic A machine to print on, some type to print with, you don't actually need to spend much money on anything at all. The problem is, of course, you keep thinking, I'd like to have a better machine, or I'd like to have more choice of lettering or whatever else, and you keep acquiring more bits. Um, so, you, you know, but it's not a necessity. You could produce miniature books using a little machine you can keep pretty well in a drawer and one case of type. And you need a minimal amount of paper and a tiny amount of ink. So, and a little bit of cleaning fluid, you really don't need to spend a lot of money on anything. So it is possible to do it all. So even at times when I wasn't in a position to spend an awful lot of money, I could still keep doing my printing. It wasn't something that was a, a problem. So that meant there wasn't a great pressure, and that's other than when I first set it up, when I actually did go to the bank. Those are the days when I shouldn't go to the bank with a business plan written in the back of an envelope, pretty well, because I can't remember that much detail down. 
and there won't be enough money to buy the stuff to set up, which wasn't a huge amount. So is this the point at which you sort of decided the science route, you've had enough in that? Oh no, I was doing this while I was still doing my science. Okay. Um, I was doing both at the same time, still a student when I bought the stuff and I was running it as a, doing it as a student. In fact, what happened was I found this book about printing, which told me where to buy things as well as how to do it, but I knew roughly how to do it anyway, but it told me about more, much more practical detail. Organised to buy this stuff, got the machine, the printing press, almost straight away, but had to wait to get the type. And then two other students turned up and said, oh, we've written a poetry, poetry book and we'd like to sell it at the Edinburgh Festival, um, and we hear you've got a printing press, can you print it for us? Now, not being terribly knowledgeable at this stage on the details of all of this, in terms of timing and so on, I nearly said yes. Well, I got the type just after that, at the beginning of the summer break, and of course I had to produce the book by August when the Edinburgh Festival started, and it was a 28-page poetry book. So I had to handset and print a 28-page poetry book in, I don't know what it was, a couple of months at the most, with enough type to set, I think it was a, possibly two pages, maybe just a page and a half at a time, and then you put it all back again. So, I mean, I don't know if everyone who's listening will necessarily be familiar with that, that process. When yes. you talk about hand-setting the type, what, yes. what does that physically Yes, getting into practicalities. Yeah. Um, right, so that means that you have a tray in which is divided into little boxes um, of, uh, with all your letters in it, all the individual letters in it. So you've got hundreds and hundreds of little letters. These are all about, um, what are they? I can't think of them, be a four millimeter uh, in one direction the size of the letter. Um, and you've got to pick those out by hand and assemble them to make up the words with spacing in between. Uh, so you're picking out uh, each letter individually and a metal space to be in between. You've then got to physically make that fit the line so they're all the same length. Every line's going to be made up the same length, even with poetry, with blank spaces. Then you have to lock those all together in a frame so they can be fitted into the printing machine. And then you've got to uh, operate the machine. Now, it's a hand machine I'm using. It did actually have a roller fitted so that when you operated the machine, the roller ran across the letters automatically to put the ink on. But you'd put a bit of paper in, shut the machine, open up again, take out a bit of paper, and do the same for the next bit of paper. And you'd do that, of course, on the side. And each colour is done separately. So you've got quite a time-consuming and quite a laborious process of producing the things. And then there's complications, like you discover that you know some letter isn't printing quite right, or it's and you've got to fiddle about with that. You've got to get the level of inking right so that it looks okay and it's not squidging out the edges and it's not too pale and spotty, and that one page looks much like the next page and it's on the right position on the page. So when you print the back of it, it lines up and they're not squint and all that. So there's a lot and a lot of very small technical details going on in this process. So trying to do a 28-page book poems, and it'd be, I can't remember it was, but something like 300 copies, is quite a, a labour. Added to which I had several problems that occurred in it. They wanted the cover to be a plain, I think it was something like a four-inch plain black square. Now, that doesn't sound very complicated, but when you run it on a very small press, one of the snags is you can't get the pressure to get a four-inch square come out really solid. So I put on a lot of ink in order to make compensate for this. The result was it wouldn't dry, so we had to add about all these bits of card sitting around in the house, because I was doing this in the bedroom, waiting for them to dry. And in the end, I think, I sprayed them all with um, some kind of spray, a fixative spray for paintings um, that finally managed to get them so they didn't smudge when you tried handling them. 
Um, so all these this is all the learning experience going on. But, but, the, but the, the, the reason I mention that is that that particular thing, most people would start off doing something like a letterhead with two lines of lettering and a 50 copy, 25 copies for a friend or something. I didn't. I did something mad as a starting point. As a result, I've never been frightened about doing a big chunk of text again and setting something fairly substantial because it sort of took the, took the fear out of that. You know, I knew to do it. It was just a case of, is there time to fit it in? So do those sort of big challenges, are those the things that excite you? Oh, on? yes. I mean, it was doing something, and, and doing something that was, the day they went off to sell this thing around the Edinburgh Festival, and sadly, I haven't got a copy of it. I've no longer got a copy. I was contributing to what they were, so it was a team thing, and it was, it was, it was all part of achieving something, and doing something useful with it. I wasn't printing something which was mundane and might well have a little bit of use, but not much. I'd rather it was a bit more useful. Running off some businesses' invoice headings is, you know, it's essential. They need them, but it's not really the world's most exciting type of thing. Doing uh, things about advertising and promotion of events that you think are worthwhile is much more motivating than doing something. But if you're going to do it for money, if you're a professional, you have to do what the customer needs. And you've got to, uh, to a certain extent, fit in with their their decisions and their choices about what they're doing. So if a firm approaches you and asks you to print some work for them or to design some work for them, do you have to investigate all their morality of what their business is about and follow or, or do you just ignore that? And, there, and it's a, there's a, like everything else, there's a grey area because the starting point are firms which are obviously doing things that are really good and wonderful and at the other end there's firms which are highly dubious and, and how do you know when they're in between? I mean, it's, you know... My father used to complain, he was in, in industry and he was in business and he was saying, you know, there were things that he didn't like about what went on, but because of the nature of the way when you're in business, you can't, you don't really have a choice about some of these things. Um, you might think sort of agricultural produce, supplying farmers with cattle feed and things was a pretty mundane business, but he said we could buy grain from other countries ahead to make sure we've got stock. And he said what we're effectively doing is gambling. We're on the futures market because we're buying our grain in in order to try to stabilise our prices because we want level prices all the way through because that keeps our business and the farmer stable and keeps the whole thing working. But in doing that, we're actually gambling on what prices are going to do at various points in the future and trying to level things up. He says that and it's, it's, you shouldn't have to do things like that. That's not what we went into business to do. But, but I think it also comes back to saying about whether you should take on a certain job or not. Um, if they are pleasure projects, then you can be much more nonchalant or passive about that and turn a lot more down. Whereas if you have bills to pay at the end of the month, then you might take on that job that isn't very interesting or maybe questions the morality. Yeah, I mean, I don't criticise people who are in that position because they have to survive. You know, definitely has got your first requirement is to make sure that you're able to, to survive. I was fortunate, I had a career which meant I could do that quite you know, safely. And if that had, if I had at some point lost that, and then I'd had to look and say, what can I do? I might well have had to turn to printing and say, I'm going to do this commercially, and how am I going to do that, and how will I, can I do it so I can try at least feel comfortable with what I'm doing? And I don't know what choices I'd have ended up with having to make there. I think, I know from even just the, the, the work that I do, sometimes you have to do things that aren't particularly creative or exciting. And yeah, oh yes, the, the professional is being able to cope with doing things that are not exciting. Yeah. And I think you, you, as well. you yes. lose a lot of that, like you can sometimes lose that joy in your practice because of the, the practicalities of 
paint the building anymore. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that sometimes that, that you look at some some things that have been designed. I look at examples of, of designs right, and think there's somebody who took something that was really pretty boring and not a very exciting task to be given to do, and they've actually done something very creative with it. And I wonder how many other people have appreciated what that person put in to creating that little bit of design on something that you know, like the you know, the bus ticket. You know, I'm looking at those bus tickets, and some guy had sort of you know put a thing together, and I'm looking at it thinking that's a pretty awful mess. You know, um, but on the other hand, there were other ones I looked at and thought, yeah, that's quite nice, but I have no idea who did it, and he, the poor guy would never really get any great credit for it because his boss was probably going to say, oh, you managed to get that done. Why didn't you get it done sooner? You know, or whatever. Um, so it's it's not uh, uh, no, it's not a, it's not something you can just condemn other people because they've not made the same choice. You know. The circumstances are always different. Um, I, I suppose there's a lot of everyday objects, even looking at, at bus train tickets now, that are really quite ugly. Oh yes. They don't have that. And then I remember we were in Japan, and you get train tickets there, and they're sort of the sort of teal colour, and they're white ink printed on top, and they look beautiful. And you're just like, why? Yes. Why haven't we thought about that? <laughs> yeah, well, quite. And of course, it, but then it changes all the time, you see, because as as things get produced in different ways, like you get your you know oyster cards and. and all these things. Then, of course, they're produced on a different process. They're also produced, I don't know, more, more centralised and more likelihood of a designerly input into them. And they might then put, and they do put more thought and so on that goes into these things. Mm -hmm. But then it, it works the other way around because they often lose track of the practicalities. Because, I mean, the one that gets me are things like bank and credit card things where you're supposed to read a number off them. And they've got some pretty picture on them which makes reading the number almost impossible. The one I had from the bank before was like that. They had a very nice pretty picture on the front of it, but as soon as the, the silver wore off the numbers that were across the top of the thing, oh, you had the most dreadful problem trying to see what the numbers were. And you're thinking, but that is one of the basic functions of the thing. You know, making it look nice is part of it, but function does have to be. I look at design at the moment and, and um, there's this fashion at the moment for sans serif typefaces, particularly sort of Gil Sands um, variations I'm going to describe them as. There's lots of ones that look, look similar but aren't always skilled sounds. In very light versions, in quite small sizes. And then when you print them on fairly glossy papers, you're thinking, all the rules I was reading about typography and, and, and guidance on how you make things legible back decades ago were saying, this is a total no-no. And sure enough, I pick up an awful lot of things and I'm getting elderly, so my eyesight's not as good as it used to be. But I'm thinking, even my eyesight was good. This is pretty difficult to read. And I'm thinking, but that's what it's meant. That's what it's there for. It's there for you to read. Why it forget about the legibility to the extent that they seem to be doing at times? Um, there's times when you think, you know, you get the instructions for something and you open a little bit of paper that comes in the box with whatever it is, and it's all set in something like three-point type. Because on a computer you can reduce it that size and it's presumably saves to, to get you a bit of paper that small. Um, but that's going to be things like the terms and conditions that nobody ever reads. And you can say, well, yeah, they always talk about the small print and it's, it's for a reason. So yeah, that's a little bit more forgivable. But when it's practical instructions you need to read, then they should be a bit bigger than that. And you, you should make it yeah, I suppose there's, there's form, there's function and there's um, business goals at the same time. Yes, yeah. And it, it gets... I think it's just people forget uh, to take those things into consideration. You don't necessarily step back. And they may be more interested in trying to make the mark by not appearing too 
conservative instead, and you know, and getting labelled as as um, out of touch. It's it's like lots of these things. There isn't a clear cut line between what's legible, what's not legible. I mean, that's changed. That's one of the interesting things about lettering that's changed over the year. When I started, there was no question you did not set blocks of text in sans serif type. That was known to be illegible. Nobody could read that kind of thing. Um, you just didn't do it. Everything had to be in serifs. Serifs joined the letters up and made the words more legible. Um, that was all part of the uh, explanation of what went on. And I was sort of aware there was something wrong with this argument because on the continent, they'd used sans serif typefaces for text for quite a long time and nobody seemed to have any problems on the continent reading them. What was it that made them so difficult to go here? And the answer, of course, is, is to do with familiarity. So when I started reading up about legibility um, as a student, I found that there, there was advice on type sizes and, and sans serif novels that had all been done. But one of the fascinating things I found was a piece of research that said art students find old-style typefaces more legible but science students find modern-style typefaces more legible. Now, modern-style typefaces, for those who are not into the technicality of these things, are the ones with the very vertical stress, with very fine hairlines for the serifs, the little ticks at the ends of letters, whereas old-style ones are more even in the weight of the thickness of the line around them and tend to have an angle to the emphasis on the boldness. Um, based on the fact that when the original lettering was handwritten and with a pen, you tend to make an angle on the, on the emphasis. So the reasoning behind that, or the explanation behind that, which I think is um, pretty conclusive, is that the reason was textbooks for science were all printed in modern typefaces, whereas novels and books for arts people or history or everything else were printed in a lot more different types of typefaces and more frequently in old-style typefaces. And the reason and that was, so familiarity was what made the two categories decide they were more legible. That was the one they were used to. The reason science books were printed in modern typefaces was when they'd started introducing lots of mathematical and other scientific symbols in the 19th century and the textbooks were being printed, they chose technically to have them all designed to go with one typeface, which was modern, because that was current at the time for an awful lot of work, but also it was more economic to do them just in one style so they all fitted together coherently. So it was a practical choice that that was what they went to do. And that had been followed just because it's that's what the person before did, and those are the ones that are available, so they're the ones you follow and you use. So a choice back then of what to do with certain symbols in a technical process that produces the brass mats that cast the lead letters that produce the typefaces affected what people found as legible and the psychology in the 20th century. And since then, designers have brought in and started using more and more, particularly in the 60s, I think, sans serif texts in magazines and books and advertisements and all that. So people get used to them and now nobody thinks twice about using sans serif. And you'll probably find, I suspect, an awful lot of the younger designers and typographers all think that sans serif is actually more legible than, you know. And added to that, the key book on legibility, which was published back in the 40s, was by Cyril Burt, the psych, um, psychologist. And it's still, as far as I know, the, the, the main book that was around on that. But the snag is that he was the guy who did all the research on IQ um, and which on the scientific basis for IQ, which has, since he died, been debunked because they discovered he faked most of his figures. So the query that still hangs over is nobody's investigated his research on legibility that I'm aware of. I mean, they may well have done and I've just not kept up with it. 
So I regard his book, which I've got, as highly suspect now. It all leads quite logically, it makes sense, but you've got to be very careful. Science is, is a pitfall. Um, common sense is highly dangerous when you start looking at things like this. Uh, what seems obvious is not always a good reason for actually it being true. You've got to actually have evidence to show things are true. That's, that's a scientist coming out. Um, <laughs> so going back to your, to your journey, you've got... Oh, yes, yes. You've got the press, you've done your first... Yep. But then, yeah. Yes. Uh, how, does that, how does that build? How do you go forward? You know? Right, well, I'm busy doing my science course. Um, I'm actually not... I'm, I'm beginning to lose a bit of motivation on that because I wasn't, I wasn't entirely happy with what's going on there. Um, but that's a side story. I went off on holiday with a couple of my mates to Arran, where we rented a cottage for a, a week in the summer. And while we were there, we were travelling around the island, and I went to Brodick, the, the main sort of holiday town, and there was a little church which had been converted into an art gallery. So I went into this art gallery, and the foyer was the, the main exhibition area, but I went upstairs, the gallery was also part of that. Went up the gallery. When I looked over the edge of the gallery, there was a guy running a printing press. Bear in mind, I'd just got mine, and just got going on mine, and so I'd only be doing mine for a few, a few months. So I rushed downstairs and introduced myself <laughs> and got to meet him. This is a guy called Stephen Gill. And he'd been, it was an interesting guy, because he'd been an art student in Glasgow and had then set up as a printer on Arden. Now, his family, it was, it was almost like a little commune. It was his mum who, who ran the, the, the art gallery and his brother who made jewellery with his girlfriend. And his father's girlfriend made jewellery as well. So they all worked as a little sort of artist's centre of themselves in this um, church that they'd acquired. And having chatted away to Stephen, uh, and he obviously introduced me, gave me, you know, showed me what he was doing and so on, and his stuff was really interesting. It was, it was totally unlike you'd, what you'd normally get on a small printer, especially on somewhere that are fairly socially isolated like Aaron. You, you'd go down and in the local shop you'd suddenly see a little advertising card and the illustration would be a liner cut, which he'd done just for this advert and the text is all set in centaur which is a very elegant very classical typeface totally not like the kind you normally use in day-to-day -day advertising so they were all quite distinctive in that way and very pretty but not um, your normal piece of, of advertising but he did a lot of work for i think it was glasgow university because he got his typeset in, in commercially in glasgow and shipped down on the ferry to Arden. and uh, and then he would print his stuff and send it back to Glasgow. Anyway, I ended up going back the next year, and as Stephen said, being his apprentice for about, I can't remember what it was, a fortnight or a month, uh, staying there and uh, eating his mum's pizzas, because she was really good at doing those. And those were the days before pizza were the kind of thing that most people had come across. And uh, helping Stephen do his printing and learning a great deal about the practicalities of working on a larger scale. And I came away with his treadle press, which he sold me, and we shipped back to the other side of Scotland, and uh, a small lithopress press as well. But anyway, the, having done all of that, I've the next, my last year, as I was finishing, uh, a friend was helping me, and he was the most impractical guy I could possibly have as a printer's assistant. Uh, totally useless at it. To start with, he's put his food on top of the treadle instead of on the treadle. Uh, there was a guard that you put, your, you put his food on top of that. Um, so as the treadle, and this is a cast iron treadle machine, so it's quite a hefty machine, powered by you treadling it, um, put his foot on top of the treadle, the machine's impetus carried it on, his foot went up and it caught under the arch of the machine between the guard and the treadle and that broke his toe. 
So he then spent the rest of his time with his prudent plaster, unable to work the press, which is what he was supposed to be doing for me. So he, he generally got in the way. Um, Well-intentioned, lovely guy, but not uh, very practical. He also, at one point, we were doing membership cards at the Student Union, and they were all covered in a fake leather paper stuff that you covered them in and bound them. You made them on little mini books. And we were doing, was it 1,500 of these things? And I sent them off to the one of the local printers to buy this material from them. And it'd all be cut into sort of three-inch strips to make into these things. So he went off to get the stuff, ordered the stuff from this place, came back to collect it the next day. So he came back and was having lunch. And he said, I don't know how many lunches. So I said, oh, by the way, he said, they didn't have the stuff you actually wanted. They'd got this other stuff. So I said, oh, that's all right. So he got I said, what was this other stuff? He said, oh, it's, it was Rexy, which of course is a, uh, a more... I can say more, more, it was a plastic coated cloth rather than a paper fake of leather. And I, of course, instantly realised this cost, I don't know what, 10 times or 15 times more than the stuff I wanted. So I instantly got on the phone to them and said, Stop, you know, what's happened? They said, Well, sorry, we've cut it into three inch strips, you know, we can't. said, Oh, right. So that meant that they need me to produce these 1500 little things knowing that we were actually making a loss on everyone we put together. There was nothing you could do about it. The price was fixed, and it was much less than the cost of this material. Oh, dear. Uh, but that was just what he was like. He was just, you know. So, uh, early experience and being careful choosing your business partners. Um, uh, anyway, but on the other hand, something good did come out of it, because he was, meanwhile, busy looking for jobs, and he was busy filling in job applications. And he said to me, oh, look, here's one that would be interested you. There's a job teaching printer science down in Reading. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because, I mean, I'm studying science and printing, but that wasn't the bit I was interested in. I thought, if I apply for that job, they'll pay my expenses to go down to Reading and back again. And I want to buy some equipment to set myself up, because at this stage I was thinking of setting up as a business in printing. I could go down to London to get to the second-hand suppliers to buy my equipment. So that was what I did. I applied for the job. Got the train down to London, hired a van, went around to northeast London, uh, to a huge supplier, round a dusty warehouse with all sorts of second-hand ancient stuff, filled the van up with stuff that I needed, and then went to drive off the job interview at Reading, thinking, well, it's only about 10 miles, I think it is. That'll only take me about half an hour. I should be there in plenty of time. Well, because I went around the North Circular, and, in the, I mean, I'd never spent much time, I'd certainly never driven in London, so... I promptly got stuck and got lost and basically. So I had to ring them up at one point and say, I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to be late for this interview. And they said, well, that's all right, we'll put you at the end of the list, that's okay. So I drove around to Reading, got to a pub, went in the loo and tried to clean myself up a bit because I was covered in dust and filth, changed into more respectable clothes and went into the job interview. And then to my astonishment, they offered me the job. And they said, well, we've never met anyone who's actually a scientist who knows one end of printing machines or anything else from another. So they were quite pleased. So I thought, well, probably I should take the job because it will mean I've got secure income. I can set up my business. I've got my bits and pieces um, and take it from there. I don't have to commit. Because my other option that was floating around was that Stephen suggested I went into partnership with him and his printers on art. And I quite liked that idea because that was a lovely setting, a lovely place to go. So anyway, I, I said to Stephen, no, I'm going to take this job. Instead. So I took that job, ended up teaching science to printers, which was mostly about things like, it was basic science for their general education, but it was also testing papers and inks um, and uh, how the, the various mechanics of printing presses worked.
But the great advantage from my point of view was I was in with professional printers who were teaching the students, who had all been trained for years, worked in the industry, knew all inside out. And they were prepared to see me as a neutral and let me ask them questions and learn from them about their individual skills. They wouldn't do it with each other. There was this, I've always said it's a bit like football supporters. If you were a supporter of the typesetting department, then you're not allowed near the people in the press department. They're, they're the enemy. You, you know, they call each other names. They had insulting descriptions of what they did. They were, they were really, really quite funny in a way. It wasn't quite as extreme in a printing college. But there was this fear all the time. There's always this sort of slight edge between them all. And a lot of it's banter. But banter usually means there's an edge to it somewhere. And that was certainly going on there. But as always, I got an awful lot of really good um, uh, information and, and from friends who were professionals in these various areas. And they were really great. There were a lot of great people um, who told me an awful lot, taught me an awful lot from what they knew. And I went to evening classes with in, in different departments and picked up how to run typesetting machines and do bookbinding and all the other various bits and pieces, uh, which was just quite fascinating. Um, and I just thought it was a shame that they didn't take quite the same interest in it, because they didn't really, as far as they could know, it was just a job. And that again emphasised my, pushed me towards this thing about, they're doing it because it's for the money, and that has somehow or other taken some of the edge off for them. Some of them did enjoy and, and liked what they were doing, but there was still always this little bit of distance. I was the nutcase who actually liked printing and was enthusiastic about it. And that was what disappointed me with the students as well, because I thought the students were coming into the industry because they were really going to be interested in it and want to know about it. No, they all just wanted to get a pay packet on Friday night and go out and get drunk on Saturday. And the fact that we were all making them learn more about it, why do they need to know that? They just need to know how to work the machine we're given every day and get on with it. And I thought, oh, what a shame. There's so much more to it. So you think that's the difference between sort of good and great, is to have that, that passion about the... Yeah, oh, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can actually, yes, I mean, you can be, you can be very, very good at the skills involved in what they're doing, and they were, but they weren't, yes, they didn't have the joy of, I'm not even sure when they produced something that was really good, how much satisfaction they achieved from it. They turned out a you know, beautifully printed photograph, technically, absolutely superb. I'm not sure how much pride they took in it. Um, they, had a, they had a love of the job. They had a pride in their own abilities and their skills. But it was very much this, like you get in any practical activity and people who have to make a career of it, they enjoy their own skill, but they don't necessarily take quite the same pride on the whole in, in what they've actually made, I think, as it deserves, or they realise, they don't always realise how how positive the things they're producing can be. Mm. So, I'm just thinking about one guy who was a designer, and we did a, an, an event at the college to do with the Caxton centenary, and I was trying to organise this exhibition for it, because I was delegated to do that, and he was in the, the graphics department, and he, he was delegated to produce a logo for it, and he produced a brilliant logo, which was, was really, really good. But, I mean, he only seemed to be interested in in uh, in money, and I couldn't work out why he was. You know, he produced this nice design, but the idea of doing anything like that in order to benefit MDLs, other than being paid for it, was just something you would never have thought about. If I'd gone to him and sort of said, "Look, I've got this 
charity that's needing a logo, which you could do them a favour and do them a logo. You would never have looked at it. Not thinking that's a bit sad. You've got this talent, and you know why don't you make use of it in positive ways that way? And then do you think so? Everyone has a a part of their life in which they find joy. Is oh yeah, I have no so idea what else you do. Yes, I mean he may well have had something else he did. So that, that <laughs> money that he made from that skill facilitated joy elsewhere in his life. Whereas some people would take the joy in the creation of that logo and the, the art form and the art working of that. Yeah, I think there's, yes, there's obviously, a, I have the suspicions that no, he was the kind of person who, because he was so focused on the money on that case, that he didn't be get much joy out of anything. <laughs> but that's, that's a, you know, that's a philosophical view. I mean, it's, it's back to, it's all his religion view, because I mean, that's driving factor as well, you know, that uh, you don't get satisfaction by being well off. It's, it's, there's more to it than that. Because I've never worried about that. That's the thing. I don't. I mean, I'm always in a dilemma with when I produce stuff now and and take it, do a print of something or other. Do I try to, to do it so that it's going to actually sell well, or do I produce it so that it's what I want to produce and nobody wants to buy it? Hard luck. Or do I produce it so that? the maximum number of people can get it and appreciate it and like it, how do I manage to achieve that last one, you see? And if I, the, the, the argument almost seems to be, if I price things so that they're cheap, then it puts people off because they think, oh, they can't, they're not that good because they're not, they're not that expensive. Because there is this sort of inbuilt almost human thing about it. it's got to be expensive if it's good. And I'm thinking, why? And, and I've had one gallery sort of say to me, oh, you've priced them all too cheap, you make it look as though you're not, you don't think they're actually that, that great. I'm saying, no, I price them cheap, so as many people as possible can have one. Mm -hmm. And because I've got a process where I can produce multiple copies, even though it's not vast numbers, I can afford to produce enough to sell them all cheaply. And if they all sell, I make just as much as if I'd sold one or two at some vastly inflated price. And I don't see the point of only producing one or two and depriving the other people that might have had one and like, like one from having one. So to sort of put that into perspective, um, if you were to say, have a, I don't know, you create an A3 print yep. um, that's maybe two colour, yep. um, what is a, a sort of accessible, acceptable price? Well, this is, this is, this is where I'm, I'm not good at the marketing, and an awful lot of artists I'm told are bad at marketing anyway. And yes, this is the difficulty. It, I, I found, you see, for example, I've taken prints to the local market. I did it just this last weekend. And I thought, I will deliberately try to produce some which are topics that actually people locally might well find that they find interesting or amusing. So it's got a quotation or something that's going to be interesting for them. It's got a local connection and I won't charge terribly much for them and see where that works. So I did some posters A3. They're actually in three colours. They were using blocks and material which came from a local printers from 100 years ago. So they've got sort of a local history connection to them as well. Although you don't necessarily notice that unless you read the small print, but you can see they're old things. And I charged, I put them on something like 20 copies of each poster. It was all I produced. And I priced them at eight pounds each. Now, they didn't sell. So the reason is, I think, most people come along and look at it and think, yes, I quite like the poster. It's quite a nice quote. It's quite interesting. But I don't know often the colour photocopier for 5, 10p. Why am I having to pay eight quid for a poster? 
you know, if I charge two quid each, I might have sold some. But then I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. That's going to be less than sort of minimum wage for the amount of time producing the thing. And if and, and the only way to make that work would be if I ran them off in sort of 500. And I'm becoming, I'm, becoming, I'm not, I'm then no longer being the creative person, I'm becoming the drudge who's running all vast quantities in order to earn a living. That's not what I wanted to do. So there's a, you know. So is the thing that needs to change is either your audience, or I, I suppose it's your audience's appreciation for your process. Yes, I think that's the, that's the bit they need to, and yet you're thinking, you're, you see, this is the difficulty between it's art and craft and so on, because it's a bit like my granny, I always used to love my granny, who, who used to, in the days of black and white television, sit and sit at night and watch Russ Conway, the pianist, the blogger for your time, play, and he played very popular stuff, very fast, he was very good, and she used to think he was a wonderful musician because he played so fast. Now, obviously, there was huge technical skill in the mechanical process of playing. And I, I don't know, he probably was a very good musician in many ways, but he was playing really popular stuff and showing off technically. And she thought that was how you measured how good he was. Now, you know, what's the difference between that and someone who's, you know, seen opera at the Royal Opera House? And, and, and you know, it's, it's this division between the skill bit and the effort put in and the art. And the bit that's not getting paid for is the art. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, if, you, if, if, people, if, if I do something which needs lots of technical skill, and people then look at that and think, well, that's very complicated, it must have taken you a long time, then you, they feel they're paying you for your time, and that's something that, that matters. And they will pay you, that, that will put the price up, I suppose. But they're not necessarily paying you because you're producing something that's artistic. And that's the bit that really is where the problem comes. And that's all back to how people decide on art and whether they pay money for it or not. Mm. And it's whether you would happily have a, a photograph of the Mona Lisa on your wall as opposed to trying to get the actual Mona Lisa to, and seeing the difference of value between the two. Yeah, right. And whether, they, whether to you would actually make a difference in the appreciation of what it is. Mm. It's, it's still interesting that a hundred years after you could sort of say what's the start of modern art, I mean obviously there's huge philosophical discussion of this, but I mean you say when what was it, Duchamp signed his word, signed his Uriah, well, yeah, whatever. Hundred that's a hundred years more ago. People still haven't got the idea. The average person still finds that something to struggle with. It's art because I've called it art. Um, so suddenly the price is higher. And I heard a story somewhere about Picasso once going around in, in some sale where they were printing things up and uh, there was one by the castle there, you see, and he, he, he was his friend, and, and uh, he looked at it, and, and it wasn't signed. So he went across and signed it, you see. And his friend said, you didn't do that one. He said, no, but I liked it. <laughs> now, I mean, that to me is the right approach to the thing. You know, he was, he was always making a joke about this whole thing of the market of art and the value of art, and the fact that that's been put on it as distinct from liking it and appreciating it and wanting to have it because you like it. And that's the difficulty. It's, got, it's all got caught up with these things. And people now, in a sense, or the members of the public, I think, are in a way frightened to spend a lot of money on a piece of something they like because they, they think they're being asked to make a judgment about art mm. and they feel incompetent at making the judgment. Okay. And so at the end, I'm still in a situation where if I take my pieces of work to certain places, then people sort of fall over them and say, well, that's wonderful.
But I'm not there, and I'm not really prepared to spend my time going off to look for those markets. So I'm really being a bit lazy about it. I really wanted people to get my stuff. I should be making more effort to get it to where the audience is. Yeah, it's also a question of who you want to make work for. Well, that's true. Um, because one of the decisions I made very early on, now if you go into letterpress printing as somebody doing it on their own rather than a big commercial business, the tradition is the private press. And I've always called myself a private press because I discovered about what those were. And in many ways I am. I'm a printer printing for my own motivations and not commercial. And that's in a way a definition of a private press. But the traditional private press, to exaggerate or my, my sort of exaggeration of that, is somebody who prints Shakespeare's sonnets in Caslon type on handmade paper and then sells them to book and hand binds them and sells them to book collectors. Now, there's still a market, there's an awful lot of people doing that kind of thing, and, there's a, and it's a continued process. But to my mind, that was, that was pointless, because the books are for collectors who put them on the shelf and don't necessarily read them, so the author's not getting anything out of it, Nobody's, he's not really increasing his readership. The design is, everybody knows it's beautiful, you're creating beautiful objects, but they're the same beautiful objects that are going round and round and round without any new, any novelty to them. There's no... Now, novelty is maybe not the right word, but no, no creative extra to some of them. You, they often have got little bits, but it's not always. And everybody knows that those things are already interesting, so why not do something that's a bit different? So when I started producing poetry books as a useful thing, I felt I would be working with poets and helping to distribute their work and give more attention to it. I deliberately did not go down the line of conventional designs. So I was always trying to use typefaces that were not the ones you might expect to be being used and layouts and designs that were not necessarily always conforming to the, the routine one. Um, but I didn't sell them as art books. And now people have looked at one or two of them and said, oh, that, but that's an art book. And I'm thinking, well, how do you define what's an art book? I mean, you know, um, I produced them simply as a poetry pamphlet to be sold you know, in the normal way. And I was going to bookshops and bookshops were stocking them. Um, and the poets were taking them to poetry readings and selling them to all the members of the public. Um, and what was disappointed one was that the last one I had done um, for a poet down in Wales, um, I said to her, take them and see if you can get the local bookshop to stock them because you're a local poet and it would work up here, but it would work where you are. And she took them to the local bookshop and they said, oh no, we don't sell art books. And I mean, we were charging £10 for a copy. And it's, I've got, it's quite a you know, reasonably thick book, but not um, not huge. But I mean, £10 was a perfectly normal price for a book that size, regardless of if you just run it off on a digital printer from a computer. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, well, you mentioned art and design a lot. Yes. So what, what do you feel you are? Are you an artist? Are you a designer? Are you a, <laughs> yes. a typesetter? Yes, quite. Um, I think I'm a mix of both of them. I've always, I've always, trouble is I've always fallen between categories. I never seem to fit exactly into the box. Um, which my feeling has always been that if, if you want to do art, it normally implies that you want to produce something and you therefore need a process, and it, you owe it to try to create your piece of art to try and master the process as well as possible to achieve the bit of art. So. If you want to produce a picture which is just a blank red square, plain red square on a white background, 
unit should have the skills to produce a plain area of colour with a straight edge. And that's a skill. It's a craft thing. It's not the art itself. Now some, interestingly enough, there's always been artists who've used people who do the things for them. So if you employ the painter or decorator to paint a red square on a piece of white canvas, which you'd be very skilled at and would do absolutely right, is it any less a piece of art? Are you not being the artist anymore? What's the painter or decorator doing? Is he the one who's creating it? You know, so normally as an artist, I feel I want to be able to try and master the processes so I can achieve it. The reason I'm needing to master them is so I can achieve the result I want you to achieve. Yeah, because it's, it's more about the, the message or questioning your thinking. Yes. Whereas I think when you design is, is much more functional. Yes, there's certainly, there's certainly, there is, the, the art doesn't have to have a functional bit at all. Other than it? Being other art. communicating, yes, yeah. other communicating, whatever. Um, whereas the design thing will often have, or will usually have, yes, a, a practical function to it. I mean, a bit of graffiti, I just, no, I shouldn't say, I've just done a bit of graffiti at the time. <laughs> well, it's not quite, not quite like that, but I've done, done something that's graffiti-like um, in the town, and it's one of a series I've done. And I actually thought this time of doing one which was a much more overtly Banksy-style political message than the one I did. I didn't actually do it because in the end, the particular organisation that's connected with what I'm doing, doing something provocative would be inappropriate for them. So I held back on that and I still quite like the idea. Um, I think letterpress printing's future is a very interesting one because when I retired 12 years ago and came up here with all my equipment, I had no idea what was going to happen to it after I went because nobody was interested in letterpress printing at that stage, really. It, was, it died commercially. Um, the, when I tried to sort of work, work out what I would suggest to anybody as to how to dispose of my stuff, um, I deal with quite a few people whose families will contact me and say, oh, we've got so-and-so, and he's got some printing equipment in the shed that he used to use 30 years, 40 years ago, and we'd like it to go to somebody who make use of it. Well, in the old days, you could go to a school, and the school would have a printing club, and they'd do it, do things. The scouts would have a printing group. Um, there'd be lots of people doing it for pin money. So there were lots of people you could pass this equipment on to. But now, those all don't exist. Nobody does them. They just don't happen. Um, for all sorts of reasons, including panics for health and safety. Um, but it's not got quite the same attraction. So I thought, what's going to happen to my stuff? It could be worth nothing. It could just go as scrap metal. But it might not. And sure enough, now, as time has gone past, people have got more interested. And so the stuff has become back to being of interest and of value to people. And people would now appreciate it and want to use it. And the other difficulty was that the industry and working with enterprise hinged on the whole substructure of suppliers that gave you all these little bits and pieces. So the metal type came from particular firms, all of which are closed now. So if somebody's trying to start off, you can, you've got to find places. Now there are people reviving that. There's a small nucleus survived on the continent. I think it's only one firm that's got all the base bits got together. There's a whole lot in America of amateurs and small firms that are producing this stuff. There's one or two in this country reviving on a very small scale. Not really commercial, but semi-commercial. So there's a beginning to be a revival of the resources of some of the things, 
But you look at it and think there's an awful lot of little bits which I wanted rollers for my presses. I went to firm the rollers. They do rollers, but they're not ideal because they no longer have enough demand for letterpress ones to make the specific ones that are actually the best ones for letterpress. So whether they'll ever be a process for providing those. Um, the, the great hope is the revival of, or not the revival, the, the increase of technologies that allow you to do things like 3D printing. Will that allow you to produce type? Of course, you can produce an individual bit of type on it, but will the economics turn out to be right? You can actually produce type on it, quite possibly. Um, will computer-controlled lathes allow you to produce wood letter? Well, yes, because that's already happening. One of the problems there is the copyright edition, uh, um, issues over who's got the rights to the lettering. Um, but there's a, at least, it's not a case of in 20, 30 years' time, it'll be almost impossible to find any good letter. Because if you want to get a good letter for printing letterpress, there'll be ways of getting hold of it. It will be possible to produce it. So in some ways, it's, it's actually, uh, this, the thing is turned around and uh, there's a future there. Quite, quite how big it will be and how viable it will be and what direction it will go is difficult to be certain. At the moment, it's got this. You see, one of the interesting things there is, I, when I was at school, I can remember thinking this, that the way technology and science was going, bear in mind I was interested in following up science and the ways it could benefit people, we will be able to provide people with all the things they need for free because automation and ways of producing stuff in mass production, plastic molding and all this, but means you can churn stuff out so cheap, you just give it to people. Well, it turns out market economics and society doesn't work that way. Um, and although and my example was, was the egg cup, you could produce egg cups so cheaply you could just give empty some egg cups. So empty some egg cups, you don't buy it, so there's no need to worry about them. If you had a world where that happened, you would still have artists and craftsmen making egg cups because people would want an egg cup that was a bit different and they'd be prepared to pay for that. So there would be a living in producing egg cups, despite the fact everybody can have a free one if they want one. And I think that's how letterpress printing might survive because printing has got so cheap, it's almost at the stage where it's free. It's not really, but it's pretty big. But people still want something that's a bit different, and that's what letterpress is surviving on. Well, people are going and getting their wedding invitations or something special done that way. And if they appreciate what's going on. Because it's interesting to watch it, because what people like now is letterpress, where you've got soft paper, almost like a card, and the letterpress is thumped into it so hard you get a dent, and actually the lettering is indented into the paper. And you can see it. Because that way it's obvious that it's letterpress. And you know that it's been done that way, and it's um, uh, it's different, and it's not what you do. You know? So you're paying for something extra, and you can see it. Um, the joke is that that was when I, certainly when I started was not considered how you should do it, because it wasn't good for the type, it wasn't good for the process. You were supposed to just kiss the paper and get up. And the idea was nobody could tell you'd done a letter press. It was the same as all the other processes. Um, Although, if you go back historically to the old days of handmade papers and uh, Gutenberg and all the rest of it, yes, they did thump it in much harder because they had to to get a decent print, but they wore their type out and they wet the paper to, to achieve the effect. Um, so there is a certain historical authenticity to it, but... I think there's a sort of sitting here with a couple of letterpress business cards in yeah. my pocket type thing, and I went for that process because it was something different, something where you could actually feel the, the physical quality yeah. of it um, and because I had a bit of an appreciation for the, the process of it. Yeah. Um, 
And I think I would also have been a lot more forgiven for mistakes or like things that yes. had going on. Whereas I wouldn't be from a digital perspective yeah, if I the track, the track. work out printers. Whereas it seemed to be the opposite. So that sort of flipped yeah. in its head. Yes, and it, and it's it's uh, so in a way I regard this with amusement when I look at these things and think you know and, and you get your wood letter with all the grain showing and the, and the dents and so on. And always the the pattern I've got. It's it's um, but I can see why and I can see why people you know like that and there is a there is a charm to those kind of things and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so. There's this sort of niche area, and that's, I think, going to, to um, perhaps, its question is whether that's going to continue or whether that's going to expand and there's going to be more possibilities from. But I can't see it ever coming back in as a major printing process. Um, that's not likely to happen. Uh, it's going to survive much more on the, the, the craft end. Yeah. So I think going forward, I think that something we, we talked about before, it's the the value comes in the appreciation of the process. Yeah. Um, and if you can get more people to appreciate what it takes to, yes. to produce these things, then the value increases. Yes, yes. And, and uh, so, yes, the more people can see what's, what's going on, the, the, the better. Because we're sitting, at the moment we're sort of sitting in this lovely greenhouse right next to your studio, which is filled with amazing machines and drawers and drawers of different yeah, sized right. types and letters and, and prints everywhere. and. It's got the feel of a working studio, but it also potentially has the feel of a museum. That's right. And that was what I, when I first set it up, was what I thought. I'd, I'd, been, I'd had people in my house down in London, where it was all stuffed into one front room in a big joint house, um, come around and say, oh, it's like coming around a museum. And I realised that it was, of course, because it, the industry had died round about me. I mean, the printing department I'd been working for had gradually got rid of its equipment and its staff. Um, and I'd ended up teaching other topics um, rather than, than printing. Uh, and so when I moved it up here, I deliberately set it up so people could come in and see it and see the process and see it in a way like because I discovered that actual museums are pretty rare in having the means of letting you see it actually happening. There's all sorts of reasons why museums run into problems. Health and safety is the, the classic one. Um, because you're working with machinery that was designed before, they worried about the laws of the present rules, so you've got issues there. So do you think that, for you, is that best case scenario that the... The type and the machines continue to live and, and go on and still produce. Oh yes, yes. I'd I'd rather. I mean, I think if they're just sitting there dead, it just doesn't. It's it's almost. I mean, there's just so much to it that people cannot get. with just seeing it in a glass case in the museum. And the result is you end up with all this time because the museums don't. They want to get people in and they need to have things that look exciting. I mean. Printing used to be a major industry in Scotland. Edinburgh was a huge centre, and yet, until recently, I haven't been in to look at the latest display. Well, there's, yes, I have, there's a bit of it. But the, the display they used to have in Chamber Street was a glass case, about four foot long and two feet high, with about 30 or 40 bits of items that were used in printing in it. And, and one printing press, which was a particularly revolutionary one, um, sitting, which is only a small thing about the size of a mangle, um, sitting opposite this case. And this was an industry that employed tens of thousands of people and you've got, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica works and nothing else in Edinburgh. It was just a vast industry and yet they've got almost nothing to convey the scale and the excitement and the, and the, the buzz that industry had mm -hmm. um, because it's so difficult for them. I mean, they've, got a, they've actually got a newspaper press at Edinburgh Museum in storage, or at least in, in one of their warehouses, um, 
and there's a group trying to get them to put it on, you know, to use it every once or twice a year so they can get the public in to see it. Um, but there's sort of almost political fights over how you finance or set up that kind of setup. They've paid for having the machine move there because it was donated and getting it reconditioned so it's all in good condition. It works, it's all just sitting there, but it's never used. Now, the guy, one of the guys who used to run it and knows how it works is still alive and around, prepared to help, but give it another 10 or 20 years and he might not be around or well enough to be able to be there and show them what to do. Is, um, I, you've sort of experienced this transition from traditional printing into the digital realm. Um, I mean, how was that experience and how did you manage that sort of trans transfer across? Yes, um, well, yeah, because because of my science, I was interested in computing and these computer things fairly early on. So when computers came in and I got hold of a BBC Micro, I could produce text on the BBC Micro and display headlines and so on and actually do my text setting on that. It was very crude, very, very pixelated, very poor quality, uh, but it was far uh, more efficient to produce something of that scale than I could have done by hand setting. So I went it from that direction. And obviously at work, I was teaching about computers coming in for the students and so on, and I was seeing them using them at work. Photo setting was the original bit, of course, and then the digital stuff came in. Um, and it's all, but to my mind, it's all, it's all just a case of horses for courses. You use different techniques to do different things. And as digital has extended its capacity and its quality, the difference between what the BBC produced, people would regard that as totally laughable now, to look at that and consider that as digital in some way. Um, compared with what you do on a, on a you know, with Windows and, and all these other things, it's just totally a different ballgame altogether. And presumably there was a sort of point where they were chucking out all this metal and then bringing in all this plastic. Yeah. Oh yes, that all went on. And an awful lot of it, I mean, uh, huge amounts went for scrap. Vast amounts. Um, I mean, I can remember going down to one of the firms in London that set the headlines for adverts, did all the fancy typesetting, because if you went to a little printer, they couldn't possibly have all the type you needed, or even a fairly big printer, we'd have all the type you needed for all the kind of things you wanted. The advertising firms, particularly where some designer would look through the latest designs and pick out the latest typeface and choose that, then you went to one of these specialist firms who had all, they would buy all the latest types and stock them. They would set this up, do a print of it, and the proof would be used to be the artwork for whatever you're doing. Photo setting, of course, killed a lot of that off because it meant you could get a photograph images lettering, so yeah, you've got your choices. Um, so I went round to one of these firms, multi-story building in London, down in the street below there's, there's uh, a huge skip, in fact there were two of them, out of the fifth floor they're emptying type cases of type and into the skip, and the skip was piled seven foot high with type. I don't know how many skips they'd already taken away. I went in and they were I was able to buy type, which they'd got still in those packets from the manufacturers in their storeroom, only to get it back. Uh, some of it was very good. I got a couple of beautiful German typeface fonts, got back home and discovered they had been the Germans picked for sorts. They'd been doing adverts and this was the extra stock in their storeroom. They'd set these ads up, they needed extras of some letters, got the store and taken those letters out of the packets. The packets I got were totally missing several letters of the alphabet, which meant they were effectively pretty well useless, and I had to just scrap them. So, that was part of the changeover, and I've played around with using digital stuff on amateur equipment. I've never used um, 
proper professional setups and so on. Um, and I'm quite happy to design something in a digital format where that's the appropriate thing to be doing. I don't see anything wrong with that. There was a year when I couldn't use my workshop because we were busy getting the building sorted out and I was busy doing posters about the history of printing for a website uh, on a digital format. The interesting thing, several people said, well, you can tell it was designed by a letterpress man. And I thought, oh, well, why is that? Um, and I don't object to the digital, it's great. Um, it is one of, I mean, one of the things I comment to people about is how technology has affected design. You go, originally, you start off with your metal types and your old style typefaces, um, things like Garamond and Caslon, which uh, are, are lovely and, and you can still see a handwriting influence in the shapes of letters. But when you look at posters and, and books and all the rest of it printed right up to about 1800, they're all done in these kind of typefaces and you don't get any really big bold typefaces. And the reason was the printing presses were wooden, the pressures they could apply on the kind of areas you're working on were fairly limited, and you were usually wanting to get a fairly good area to print your whole book or your newspaper or whatever. Um, and so that was the way you, you got to. The then 1810, it is, the metal press comes in, and suddenly you can print far more pressure. You've got a lot more capacity to print um, big areas and bold black things. So big bold black lettering comes in, and you get all your and your sans serifs come in because of the because of the introduction, the beginning of advertising in a sort of modern sense. So you're getting much more shouty adverts. You're getting bold typefaces to be able to do that, and the presses are able to produce those. So you get a sudden flurry of new designs of typefaces, and people object to this. You get typefaces called grotesque which means ugly. That was what they meant by it. And grots, or sans serifs, were given that name because people thought they were ugly. We don't think about it now. Because um, they changed the names. Yeah, well, they changed the names as well, yes, that's right. We still talk about, printers still talk about a grot because it's, you know, it's still all the same thing. But you don't actually think of it in terms of, oh, that, you know, derogatory. Um, so you get all your bold typefaces and a sudden flurry of uh, novelty of typefaces. And then it settles down for a bit, and then lithography comes in. Now, it's been hovering around, but as you get nearer the end of the 19th century, lithography becomes much more um, widespread, and it starts off doing illustrations. But because you can hand-draw the lettering, you're going to run out on that. No, <laughs> because you can hand-draw the lettering, um, you can put in all sorts of frilly bits when you're doing with pen and ink. So the litho tries to exploit their advantage, I think is probably the way it was working, by making use of this freedom to do these kind of designs. And the artists start playing about with these. And the letterpress people are thinking, we've got to compete. So they've got to produce typefaces that will compete with all these fancy lithal ones. So they produce all their frilly, over-the-top Victorian typefaces, which we all think now are highly entertaining and really kitsch and wonderfully amusing. When you look at them in the examples of Victorian printers at the time, they can be really beautiful and they do some wonderful uh, work with them. It's, it's the technology has changed. The life of process meant that they suddenly, you could, competition, you had to, and, and they also found other ways of making the moulds to cast the letters by electrotyping, doing other processes, and they were able, with new casting machines, produce these frilly letters, which really letterpress isn't too suited to, because they wear badly and the bits break off and all this stuff. So, suddenly the technology has changed. Um, then you get in, 
the 20th century and the typecasting machines and the big manufacturers who have got lots of money, like Monotype and Linotype, who are making these machines on a huge scale, so they've got a lot of money, they can then invest in designers and typefaces. So they bring in a new and a lot more academic study of typefaces. You've got Beatrice Ward and Stanley Morrison choosing typefaces based on all designs that are good ones and reviving those and modifying them to tidy them up for modern processes. And a whole new classic revival of typefaces comes about because of the influence of these big firms. Oh, next stage, letter set. And that again has got freedom of what you could do with lettering and hand, and it's a new cheap way of producing lettering that means they can employ designers to produce lettering that doesn't have the huge investment that metal type needs in producing new design. So you've got a sudden burst of creative new lettering at that point. And photo setting follows that up with the same sort of advantages so you can do it in photo setting. And digital merely takes that process one stage further and means that everybody at home can have a little programme and design their own lettering. And you've got all these dreadful little ones with little flowers all over wherever else, all done that way as well. Um, so it's all the same thing has gone through lots of times. And what happens is that usually the worst of each one are left behind and certain ones survive and pass on to the next stage and are kept and are used again and again and again and carry on through. And so the good designs will keep going. And the, the bad ones will often survive because they're fun. And I'm a great supporter of bad designs that are fun. Uh, I've got lots of littering which I wouldn't defend the least on the grounds that it's tasteful. It's just great. It's just got character. And I like that, you know. Um, the, the, I've always tried to avoid having, I mean, when I started, I started off with Gil Sands and Perpetua, which is rather sort of arty textile face. And I decided to get rid of the Gil Sands because it was very, it was pretty well accepted everywhere. And, I thought, no. and Universe came out and I read about Universe and it was the latest design very interesting I thought great I like that and I got Universe and I printed the poetry book and you see with Sans Serif and not what you did um, and then Universe took off and became very very popular with letterpress printers this is 60s and I thought oh, bother <laughs> I quite like that one but um, you know it's now become very common there's no need to sort of uh, show people this is a face that's interesting um, so I, I eventually got rid of almost all my universe. I've still got one font, I think. Um, and that's been the story of various times. I've gradually, you know, I've got various typefaces I've liked. So in your, your workshop at the moment, what would you say is your, your favourite thing? My favourite thing? Ooh, that, now that is very difficult to come up with. I, I'm, I'm too much of a butterfly on that. I tend to look around at times when I'm about to try and think of an idea doing some job or other, something that's not particularly sprung to mind, and look for something lurking in the corner that I haven't used for a long time and think, oh, that poor thing's been neglected. I'd like to see if I can make use of that. What's that? Why haven't I used that type of face for ages? I really ought to dig that one out. And I've got so many now, because it's ridiculous, that there, there's umpteen ones I haven't used for several years. And I think that's, you know, I really ought to be trying to keep using them, and, and if they're sitting there and I'm not using them at all, why have I got them? They should be, somebody should be making use of them. So I, I, I find that almost impossible to answer. There's, there's, there's so many little bits and they're all there and they're all fascinating. Whether it's just an at sign or a little manicule 
they're obviously sort of fun things and, and little tiny Victorian trees. They're all great fun things, but very obviously fun things. But I've got, I mean, I've got a typeface, it's the same one I haven't used for a while. I've got a typeface I got two or three years back, an American one called Ad Lib. And it's done as though it's almost like it's crude paper cutouts of letters by hand and stuck on. Um, not quite a ransom note, but nearly gets sort of shades like it. Almost like, yes, hand, hand cut bits of it. And the, the lovely thing about that one is they give you several versions of the same letter so that it doesn't end up all looking the same. Added to which you can turn the U's upside down to make N's and the N's to make U's to give a bit more variety. And it's just wonderfully eccentric and it's, it was a 60s thing. So just to, just to finish up, um, what excites you for the future? Well, excites me for the future. I think what I'm finding most exciting in the fact is the fact that um, being able to, to deal with much younger people than me who've come into and got excited about letterpress in the last few years, and I'm able to try and encourage them to progress and to go off and do whatever it is they're wanting to do. And that's really great because for a long time, uh, there wasn't much sign that that was going to happen. And it was all full of elderly white blokes who, you know, who all knew each other from decades. And it's now changed quite radically from that. There's an awful lot more people involved. Um, and they've got, and they're much more prepared to be adventurous than they were in the past. And I think there's a great future there. And That's good, thank you very much. Right. We've got plenty there. And that was John. Thank you very much to him for coming on. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. And it was, yeah, an absolute mammoth conversation, but so many brilliant little parts of it and stories and insights in there. That's fantastic. Um, if you do want to check him out, he is uh, Quarto Press on Facebook, and you can see some of his work on there as well. I'll try and throw some photos um, into the show notes on the website as well if you want to check out sort of the studio and things like that as well. Um, and obviously the, the print is now on sale, so you can go to cccdundee.com forward slash store, um, and everything is on there. But beyond that, um, if you're new to the podcast, or if you haven't done it already, get on to at cccdundee on Twitter and on Instagram to follow there, um, or facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash cccdundee, and that's the best place to keep up to date with everything that's going on, the new guests, new releases, new merch, whatever that may be. Um, so that's it for the episode, and now it just leaves for me to recommend another podcast. So as we're sort of getting into the, the whole geekery of typography this week and um, a bit more of the technical aspects, I thought I'd choose a podcast that reflects that as well. Um, so this week I've gone for one called Design Details. Um, it's run by two guys out of California uh, called Bryn Jackson and Brian Lovin. And they basically have all the great and good of designers, developers from Silicon Valley. And they, they chat to them and have a sort of find out what they're up to, find out what they're working on. But I mean, they've had such a, a range of amazing designers from amazing companies like um, Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, pretty much any company that you can imagine, any sort of new startup or Silicon Valley company, they've had folk in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, if it is very much design focused, it's very technical and um, they get into the ins and outs of it. 
Um, so it is very much for the designers out there, um, whether that's UX, UI, illustration, whatever, there'll be episodes and people in there of interest for sure. So that is design details. Um, and that's it. That's my recommendation. And that's the end of this week's podcast. So until next Wednesday with our episode with Kevin Sink, goodbye. <laughs>